0: It was a side hustle that we wanted to put all our energy into. We wanted to do it properly. We wanted to have something. When we finished chat, we figured there was a gap for conversations about celebrity and pop culture, and we figured that podcasting was a really great medium for them to fit
1: into. Unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, you've probably heard of The Shameless Empire, a media phenomenon and podcast that has been downloaded 10 million times, was awarded Australia's most popular podcast of 2019 at the Australian Podcast Awards, and has captured the hearts and minds of the 20 to 30-something generation. So in this podcast,
2: we talk to Zara McDonald, one half of the Shameless Media brand, which was born on Zara and her co-founder Michelle Andrews' bedroom floors back in March 2018. The pair met working at Mamma Mia Women's Network, and by their own admission, they knew Sweet FA about podcasting when they started the journey but they have since gone on to have multiple award-winning shows.
1: They've got a book coming out and a juggernaut brand that just keeps growing. And this conversation was fascinating because despite all that success at a relatively young age, Zara candidly shared with us what many of us feel, and that is a sense of imposter syndrome, sometimes not being good enough, even the concept of wanting to be good to be liked in her younger years. Yeah, she made some really interesting and quite
2: vulnerable comments. Like despite all of her success, there's this underneath this little person who's still trying to work out, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? And I think this was a really interesting conversation about what a lot of women and, and young women as well go through where, you know, they want to try and make a dint in the world but there's this little voice inside them that is pulling them back sometimes from really stepping into their own skin and
1: being visible. And the other thing that Zara talked about was initially Shameless being a side hustle. And when we drilled down a little bit further, she kind of, or the way I heard it was that she was saying, if we call it a side hustle, then if it doesn't work, we haven't kind of put anything at risk. We haven't exposed ourselves. And I think that's a pretty common experience for a lot of us.
2: Yeah, for sure. And she's certainly super courageous and has achieved an incredible amount um, and really represents that next generation who are sort of caught between adolescence and adulthood and and part of what she's trying to explore is what's the hardest thing about being in that liminal space between. It was a really great conversation and um, we hope you enjoy
1: it and learn a lot from her. Here's Zara. So, Zara, you and your co-host Michelle describe your shameless podcast as being for smart women who like dumb stuff, but you've now hit 10 million listens and recently interviewed Julia Gillard. Yes. What do you think it is about celebrity and pop culture that resonates with your listeners?
0: Um, it's a really good question because, and it's clearly something um, that Michelle and I have gone back and forth on over the last couple of years when you try to reflect on kind of why the content we've been making has resonated with a certain type of audience. And I think it's a couple of things. I think for starters, it wasn't just the celebrity and pop culture angle, but it also was probably the fact that Michelle and I were young and female and there aren't many spaces for young females together in mainstream media to sort of have a voice and to sort of be broadcasters. And then beyond that, when we were talking about celebrity and pop culture stuff, it was stuff that was just completely untapped in a way that we wanted to have conversations i mean when miss and i ever spoke about the bachelor or when we spoke about another reality television show we didn't have a conversation that was really surfacey. like maybe it was being reported in the daily mail we were having sort of really thoughtful conversations about what certain storylines meant or how the, the um, certain characters were framed and things like that and we just figured that it wasn't a type of conversation that was being had on a very mainstream level people were kind of taking pop culture combo at its face value and we didn't think that that's how young women were talking about celebrity reality tv and pop culture.
2: Zara can I just clarify something there so did you guys kind of do a lot of insight or work to validate that you thought you were actually onto something you were tapping some sort of seam?
0: I think for sure because I think you kind of do find yourself wanting to reflect on what it's been because I think both of us have experienced different levels of I guess imposter syndrome or something that level and you start to wonder well I don't understand why anybody's listening to us and it's kind of very self-fagellating and kind of self-indulgent to like I don't really get it but you kind of do want to think about it because if you can kind of nail down why it works then you can kind of keep going and make sure that you're staying on your tea and staying on brand and making sure you're sticking to your values and and kind of keeping that audience with you and not losing them.
2: So where you drop the big IS, oh, yes, the uh, imposter syndrome, and so many women have it. We, we hear this over and again with females that um, have achieved incredible things but still have this little voice inside that says, you're not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, etc. Now, you were ducks of your school. You've received multiple academic awards. You've been a passionate wordsmith since high school. What, for you, if you have this imposter syndrome, what does all that achievement and external validation mean to you?
0: What does it mean? Not a lot. I mean, I say that not being ungrateful for things that have happened, but it's kind of hard um, to – it's kind of all external validation. I think there's one thing that I've learned in the last kind of year or so, what I need to to really prioritize is is almost internal validation. And I don't even know if that's a thing. Sabina, you're probably – as a psychologist, you're probably kind of like psychoanalyzing this now, but I think confidence has been such a huge issue for me, the longer this has gone on, I think I was more confident when I started than I am now. But I've tried to kind of work on making sure I feel confident enough for the job. And so it's really easy to, to consider the external stuff as, as white noise because at the end of the day, it's amazing because it gives me a job and it gives me a platform. But if I'm not feeling confident in the work that I'm doing, then nothing else is really going to matter.
2: Mm.
1: And and you're right, um, Zara, that internal validation is a, a meaningful construct and it means different things to different people. What do you think it means for you? Uh,
0: it's, it's funny that you ask that now because I don't think I'm there yet, but I have been kind of thinking about it a lot and doing a lot of work on it because when you sit in front of a microphone two or three times a week and you're kind of putting yourself and your opinions and your personality too out there, you have to have skin and so I'm trying to build that now I'm trying to really like myself to be honest I'm trying to work on this ability to be like to like myself so much that the opinions of others mm. carry less weight which is a hard thing to do when you work so publicly and your work is so public because growing up a have always cared way too much about what people think so for me I guess the concept of internal validation is just liking myself enough so that the opinions of others carry less weight.
1: Yeah, and it's something that I think is not just relevant to the twenty somethings, but you know, across every decade of our life, that's an ongoing story. You just said that growing up, uh, you did place a lot of value on the perceptions of others. What was your family culture like? Um, my family was and still is the best; like they're, <laughs> they're incredible. Um,
0: I grew up with an older brother, an older sister, a younger brother, and to parents um, and it was like, I mean, we had a pretty lovely, un um, untraumatic childhood like we travelled a lot and they were, my parents in particular kind of put a lot of emphasis on ensuring that we studied and worked hard, which I look back now and probably think it was pretty key in my like creating some sort of work ethic now that even from like the youngest age, the focus was working and trying at something and if you're gonna do something, do it properly. I I look at my siblings and I don't think that they grew up in the same or grew up with the same sort of sense of a desire to be liked as I did and I wonder if that maybe is a gender thing. Maybe my sister is a little bit similar. We've often shared actually kind of conversations about caring what people think, but I don't know where that comes from. I think I think when I look back at my childhood, my, my parents put a lot of emphasis on asking people how they are, um, always focusing more on other people than yourself and also put a lot of emphasis on making sure that you make people in your space feel comfortable and safe. And I always kind of made maybe this really incorrect assumption that if I was making people feel safe and comfortable and heard, then they would like me. But in reality, it's just those two things aren't connected. I thought if I was being a good person, that would be like... And I don't think that those two things necessarily are connected and it's taken me a long time to kind of rework that, if that makes sense.
2: Mm. A lot of women do do that, that they sort of turn their lights down when they're around other women often. And that's part of that wanting to be the nurturer and make everyone feel comfortable and yeah, it can take a while to kind of show up and be visible, I think, especially with you. You've got a really public profile now. Part of you know, the complexity of that is, is knowing how to manage that public persona um, and then square away enough time for yourself privately to nurture the parts of yourself that you do want to hold for yourself. How, how do you do that, Zara? Like, how do you make sure you are caring for that internal life and self?
0: For me, it comes down to what I share and what I don't share. I think it's kind of really nice to know that there are elements of myself that kind of won't ever really come out of the podcast, which is not to say that you're holding anything back from the podcast, or so you're not being yourself, but there are certain, you don't have to give every single part of yourself away. And I used to kind of think that in order for people to really understand me or to really kind of understand the context of which I'm coming from, I needed to share every part of myself. Mm. I do think we have a responsibility to share a lot. But that doesn't mean everything. And so I guess to maintain my sanity and to make sure I feel nurtured and to make sure I feel like I'm looking after myself, I have like a separate identity away from work, Um, which isn't always easy because I think they're so interlinked my job and, and who I am as a person, but I guess the more I kind of make a conscious effort to separate the two, the better I feel about things.
1: Oh, look, this is a really interesting topic for me because, and we've asked other guests, I think, around this idea too, that when you share so publicly um, all aspects of yourself, which you're saying you do not do, you pull in not only your own stories, but those of the people in your inner circle partners, parents and siblings. Have you thought about that? Have you talked to these people about you, you dancing on this public stage and have you made any sort of hard and fast agreements with these people that you won't carry them onto the stage with you with their dirty laundry?
0: With the podcast, it's never really been that big of an issue. I mean, yes, you share parts of yourself, but I'm not getting on there and talking about like what I did with my family on the weekend or maybe how what we spoke about at dinner or anything like that. But what has been interesting is writing this book, Because Michelle and I co-wrote a book about our 20s, which is a lot about um, personal essays about our experiences so far in our 20s. And I hadn't had this experience before where I was writing so intensely and deeply about myself. And you're right. Like, you can't just write about yourself. Like, your story is so inherently impacted by the people around you. I had to send anyone who has mentioned basically stuff that I was writing. Um, I was very conscious. To make sure that I was telling the truth, and I know that might sound very self-explanatory, but I think when you look back on an experience, you can like necessarily make it more dramatic or more intense or more emotional than what it was. Like I, every single time I was writing, I was trying to pin down like, is this actually how I felt in this moment? Because if I'm telling the truth and I'm not overblowing something, then pulling people into that story will be less of an issue. But yeah, I did have to have conversations with me. It was very awkward because I'm not very um, I'm not very scary or open, and so. A lot of the stuff I was writing down, I hadn't shared with my family or my closest friends. So to then send them this stuff and be like, hey, this is stuff that I've written and it's not just for your eyes now, it's going to be for the whole, you know, the whole world, It's kind of a weird thing for them and for me. But it, it's been really nice. It's kind of added a new layer.
2: Tell us a bit more, Zara, about the book called The Space Between.
0: It is a collection of sort of essays and ruminations on life in your 20s. I think we're really careful when we're giving kind of like our elevator pitch about the book To say, you know, it's not about – it's not a a how-to guide. There's no real tips and tricks about 20s, but I guess we wanted to write a book that made people feel less alone where we just kind of detailed experiences, very certain experiences. I mean, Michelle and I have a very um, certain perspective on the world in that we're kind of white, able-bodied, cisgender, and middle class. So There's only so many stories we can tell, but we wanted to write stories that made people feel less alone, whether it was about heartbreak or work or, um, you know, family stuff consent you know or fun stuff like traveling Mm. we just wanted to write about it all and um, sort of share those experiences and make sense of that that sense of limbo that kind of is really pervasive throughout
2: your 20s. Where you say that you and Michelle um, are you know white middle class and you have one one sort of prism of of a world view then how did you check your bias and sort of what's your relationship with the privilege that you have had?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think it's something I've been thinking about a lot since we started writing this book because even though we say it's a book about the 20s, like I said, it's it's one experience of your 20s. Like This is not a universal experience of everybody's 20s. And I think for us, it was important to do a couple of things at the very start of the book to flag that, to be like, this is not everybody's experience of your 20s. Yes, we write about things that affect Probably a lot of people and they're also not easy, lovely experiences that we write about, but they're still kind of um, saturated in privilege because of by virtue of how we've grown up in the world that we've lived in. Um, so for us, yes, I still am proud of the book and I think, I think it could potentially make people feel less alone, but it's hardly going to be the only book that makes people in their 20s feel less alone. So in terms of my relationship with my privilege and Miss's relationship with her privilege, it's good for us to push this book but also to push a whole lot of books that we could never write or have written because they'll just be different perspectives. So for, for me it'll be really important to often point to the other books that can help young women in their 20s.
1: Yeah. One, uh, one more question on the book. I'm just wondering, what do you think is the hardest thing about being in your 20s? Uh-huh. And, and I hear this will be your perspective, not, not every 20-something speaking.
0: I think one of the,
1: the most
0: pervasive thoughts for me has been this concept of like never feeling like I'm doing anything right or being constantly plagued by this sort of I'm doing it wrong um, that I think a lot of 20-year-olds feel whether they're working too much or traveling too much, not saving enough money, whether they're plagued with health issues, whether they're plagued with mental health issues. I think a lot of people feel like they're doing it wrong and that they're not normal um, without any grasp on what's being normal actually means. And yes. I think from what I hear, it gets easier as you get older. Uh, I actually
1: don't know I don't anyone want to, normal. I know, And I don't, I don't want to disappoint, but you know, that is a sentiment that I hear um, professionally and personally from people across the lifespan. So sorry no. to be the bearer no. of bad news, but you ain't going to turn 30 <laughs> and, and feel normal. Oh
0: there is God. no normal in your
1: future or ours. <laughs>
0: No, nah, I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. No sense of no more.
1: <laughs> uh, let's go backward before we go forward again. You and Mish cut your teeth as writers at the Mamma Mia Women's Network, which I reckon many would regard as Absolute trailblazers in digital media and podcasting, particularly with a, a lens on on women. What was it like to work there?
0: Yeah, so Miss and I started there when we were really young. We were um, tiny baby interns. I was about twenty or twenty one when I started interning there, and then I started working part time, and then we started working full time. We were really young when we were working in this media landscape, and it was incredibly fast paced. It was a pretty all consuming job when you're working in digital media, you know. Your shifts were a bit all over the place and the news cycle kind of never stopped. So it was a really good training ground, to be honest. I mean, it taught me how agile mm. digital media was and also needed to be. I think we got... Miss and I had a really close working relationship from the age of about 22, 23. We worked weekends together. She was the weekend editor and I was the weekend journal on. And it was often just the two of us running the site on a Saturday. So we had a pretty... Um, intense level of pressure and responsibility to make sure that the work we were putting out was good and quality and also getting eyeballs. So it was a really interesting time. It was pretty formative in our working relationships for sure. And it also taught me that in order to be a journalist at this time and in this realm, you need to have more than one skill. And when I was there, I could basically write and that was about it. And I would look at the podcasting department and think, how do I get myself in there? Because if I can get myself in there and know how to podcast, then I'll be more likely to be hired by you know, my next employer and the employer after that because we were just plagued by this sense and fear that we would never get a job after Mm.
2: the one we are in. Mm. Well, we look at the fracturing of the mediascape now and and obviously uh, in recent times we've seen the closure of more magazines and a contraction of newspapers. So it's a really interesting time for media. obviously started my life in in newspapers and and media and um, I think you're right. People now have to have a lot of skills in their back pocket to stay relevant. You must have been quite prescient then because at Mamma Mia you co-hosted the Popular batch. Bachelor Podcast Batch Chat. What was that like? I mean, that was early, earlier days of podcasting, and now, of course, podcasts have become kind of ubiquitous. Tell us about your experience of co hosting that Bachelor Podcast.
0: Well, I remember um, when the old head of podcast, I say old head of podcast, not old, I mean, the former head of podcast, Monique me, I heard us, um, Michelle and I, having like this big, passionate Bachelor debate, she said, You two need to get in the studio, let's try and see if we can make this into a thing. And I remember being so stoked and feeling so happy that that could be our foot in the door. We kind of applied the same method that we've applied to every work project we've had ever since in that Nish and I put so much prep and time into making sure that podcast was something we were proud of. And I think at the time it probably sounded a bit silly because all we were doing was recapping a Bachelor episode. But. We would kind of prep and script things and make sure our conversations had light and shade, and we enjoyed it so much. We had the best time in the world and I think I haven't gone back and listened to those episodes, God, in years and I would would hate to. But um, it's definitely proof that you can start anywhere.
2: (laughs) So how did you know then, because you went from potting at Mamma Mia to then launching Shameless, when you set out then to launch Shameless, was it? were you thinking it was a side hustle or was it, no, we're going to give this a red hot go and try and get this thing to fly?
0: It was a side hustle. It was a side hustle that we wanted to put all our energy into
2: because I think we wanted to do
0: it properly. We wanted to have something. When we finished that chat, we figured there was a gap for conversations about celebrity and pop culture and we figured that podcasting was a really great medium for them to fit into also very selfishly we thought if we've trained ourselves in podcasting and in editing and hosting, then we'll be able to apply for a job next time in the next kind of few months or a few years and at least look like we have initiative. We started doing the show. We initially picked it to Mamma Mia and it just wasn't the right timing for them. So we asked them at the time, could we do it ourselves outside of work? And they said yes. So we started doing it ourselves and just got it off the ground. God knows how. As you guys know, podcasting Looks much easier oh, it's than easy. It is. I, I'm <laughs> laughing at uh,
1: something you just said. Then you said it was a side hustle that we wanted to put all our energy into. That makes it more of a middle hustle than a side hustle. I think.
0: Well, well, what is it? Because people do ask us that sometimes. like, did you want it to become a thing? And I guess if you had have asked me then, of course, I would have wanted it to become a thing. I didn't ever think it was a possibility.
1: Yes. Yeah, so what we is were it, fear? There's fear. Yeah. Thinking if we call it a side hustle and it doesn't fly, well, then it was only going to be a side hustle.
2: But also you strike me, Zara, as a bit of a get shit done person. Like if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Yeah. And I
1: think um,
0: Michelle is very much like quite similar in that if we're going to do it, we're going to do it properly. Also, we were 23 with the benefit of having nothing else going on mm. in our lives, like, We didn't have people who were relying on us like kids around or anyone really wanting much of us. Like we had time and space enthusiasm and energy to put into it. So we used that and we channeled it. One thing Miss and I have realized very recently is probably one of our strengths is that we can get things done quickly um, and decisively. Like we don't really spend much time worrying about the decisions that we make. Like we make decisions really quickly and we're almost off always on the same page, which has been really helpful in running a business together. Because when we decided to do Shameless, we wrote a list of every single thing that we wanted to do and get done and every single thing we wanted to learn. And I looked at that list and I thought, oh my God, A, I don't know where we're going to get the money from to buy all this equipment. B, I don't know how we're going to teach ourselves to do this. And she turned to me and she said, we can do this in three weeks. We can get this off the ground and launch in three weeks. And I was just thinking, there is no world where we're getting this off the ground in three weeks. Um, But we ended up getting it off the ground in about four and a half. Wow. So that's kind of the nature of our relationship. Michelle kind of shoots really high and I have to bring her down to work but also kind of have to work for those very quick timelines and we usually somehow just get it done.
1: So you're tapping into something that regardless of the industry or the sector you work in, working with other humans is one of the toughest things we do. And if you're in a business together or a project like a pod, it's particularly, you know. Like a pressure cooker. Sabina
2: and I have had multiple mediations. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and legal issues between us. <laughs> yeah, I'm suing <laughs> but, you. <laughs> but, not, but actually hearing you talk, Sarah, I mean, I have some little part of envy in some ways that you said we had this sort of road ahead of us. We didn't have too many pressures. It was sort of, I don't know, it was okay to give it a whirl. Mads and I have got six kids between us, three dogs, and probably six jobs as well as the the pod. So I love that you just had the space and you decided to give it a crack. What do you think is the hardest thing about co working or co founding with Mish?
2: It's a really
0: interesting question because I mean, I have to be honest. I mean, working relationships, they're not like I'm not gonna sit here and, and Michelle definitely wouldn't either and say it's just like this seamless, easy process where you agree on everything and it's just sort of like we're two angels working beside each other. Like it doesn't really work like that. You're both we're both incredibly passionate and incredibly driven and sometimes we will disagree on things often we will disagree on things and I'm kind of relieved that we do disagree on things because it means that we're probably making progress and we're both thinking about things from a different perspective I think for us the hardest I mean gosh I'm actually genuinely trying to think the hardest part yeah probably deciding when you're both because there's only two of us we do have Annabelle our producer working, and we also have a partnerships and marketing manager coming on board in the next couple of weeks. But for the most part, it's just the two of us making decisions for the business. And when you've got two people that disagree on the way to go forward, you really have to step back and be like, all right, well, we have one decision to make and one path we can really take here. Which path do we take? And I've kind of come to the resolution that usually when we're having a disagreement or we're kind of disagreeing on which way to move forward, I try to work out who seems more passionate because then mm. I think the more passionate person is usually the one that's got more investment and is probably right.
2: What advice would you give to people then who are in close working relationships um, around how to move through those challenging or difficult times?
0: God, it sounds like such a cop-out, doesn't it? But we um, and I communicate about everything. I think not just about work, but we also communicate about what's going on in our personal lives too, because I think context is everything for the both of us. Like if we're distracted one day or... Our mood or our um, uh, decision-making is informed by stuff going on outside work. It's probably important the person you're working very, very closely with has all the context in the world, so they're never guessing as to why you are being how you are. I mean, we have been through a lot together, a lot outside work and a lot inside work. And I think being across all of that helps you understand that person very intimately. And I think you can't really work with someone as much as I work with Michelle and not know them very intimately because I think then you have very particular insight into how and why they are, and for us that's been crucial.
2: Mm. And it sounds like you've had, you know, you've obviously built your team and had some good support around you. What about about the role of mentors, Zara? What role have they played in your own success? Oh, my God, huge, 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 huge.
0: We felt very much like the last couple of years we've just been driving blind, and I still feel very much like that. We're driving blind because there's no real... For us, when we entered podcasting, like, yes, there were quite a few podcasts around, but it wasn't the industry that it, as it looks today. And there was nothing we could really model our business off. I, I think the reason that we started to find an audience was because not much like us existed, which means we were kind of creating our own path. And creating our own path was going to be crucial to our success because if we started copying other mainstream businesses, then we'd be in a world of trouble. So because we were kind of driving blind us building a really small network of mentors who we could just pick up the phone and call and be like, are we crazy or are we okay or are we on the right path was really important for us, (laughs) to be honest, and for our confidence.
1: And were those mentors people who actually worked in in podcasting or were they media or um, successful women in business? Media.
0: We have a few different people we go to. One's kind of really, uh, firmly family in the podcasting radio space, so knows the industry really well. So if we've got questions about the industry and decisions to make about that or about questions more specifically about our audience, we'll go there. And then we've got a couple of others who just work in the, the media space who can help us, whether it be with business advice or writing advice or just sort of, um, you know, giving us confidence. Mm. It's, it's crucial because you feel, I feel very young and very, uh, I, I, I dare I say like immature and a bit, um, ignorant about so much of how the industry works and how our business could function, that we would be nothing without having people to lean on.
1: So, if anyone's listening and thinking I want to get in, I want to get in on this pod action, what's your number one tip for for those who are wanting to get involved in podcasting?
0: I think a lot of people ask us a lot of the time: Is the podcasting industry too saturated? Should I still push ahead with my idea? My uh, my answer, honest answer, would be yes. The podcasting industry is incredibly saturated, and I think the most important thing before you enter it is to recognize that. And I think what that means is it means your idea has to be pretty well fleshed out and a little bit different and pretty hard at the moment to find an idea that's a little bit different, but you have to be confident that there's something that you're servicing or a hole that you're filling um, because otherwise, yeah, like you said, you can kind of get lost in the abyss. And, and Michelle and I even still struggle with that today to making sure that how do we make sure that every episode we're doing and every conversation we're having isn't just what's already out there? And I I would say that's the number one thing that in order to cut through, you kind of have to be really sure about what your purpose is and who you're serving and what hole you're filling.
2: Who is your, if you can describe the persona of the, the person that's listening to you, who is that?
0: Yeah, so I think, I mean, any woman in Australia, actually not even just Australia, Australia, New Zealand, a little bit over in the UK, who is between the ages of 20 and 30, who has felt particularly in, uh, ignored by the mainstream media for a very long time. It is someone who um, has conversations with their girlfriends about celebrity pop culture, who is often being told that that stuff is stupid, when in reality, the conversations they're having are not stupid at all. They're actually quite thoughtful and quite reflective of the zeitgeist at that point in time. So it's somebody who probably doesn't also want to take celebrity and pop culture wants it to take it seriously but not too seriously as well, like wants to have fun with it. I think what we're finding with our audience is that there is, yes, so we can probably capture it pretty specifically to an age range, but I think it speaks so hugely to how young women haven't really been spoken to for a very long time in mainstream media that we have just a whole cross section of young women who listen.
2: And so with the celebrity and pop culture that where, you know, of course there's a place to have just a light conversation and, and um, Uh, enjoy that and explore that where then are those young women 20 to 30 year olds where are they going then for their sources of truth or the wisdom that they're seeking about themselves or the world
0: i mean i feel like our listeners in
2: particular a huge
0: other podcast listeners and i think that's what i love about podcasting is that we can recommend a million different podcasts on our own podcast because there are a lot of hours in the day to listen to podcasts Um, We also have a a Facebook group called Famous Podcast Book Club. And I think that our audience are pretty voracious readers too. I think there is a huge movement at the moment. And I don't know if it's because of the state of the world or if it's just a generational thing, but I think that a lot of our readers are looking for nonfiction stuff to read that will make them feel better about the world and their place within it. I think it's interesting to me because I think someone like Brené Brown or Glennon Doyle is really targeted at a kind of um, maybe – a 30- to 40-year-old woman, but I do think that there's real benefit that a lot of young women are getting from their work as well, which I'm finding really, really interesting.
2: We can't compare young women or young men, for that matter, across the ages because the worlds we inhabit are different. Really? We're in this extraordinary complex time at the moment in the world. And so the way you're viewing that, it's not from the same vantage point as as, as, our, as my generation. I work with a lot of girls through one of my businesses, Girl World, and um, a lot of what, what I see there is young women who are incredibly empowered and informed and, yes, they might be uncertain about the steps they're going to take toward their uncertain futures in a world like this, but all I see is promise and potential with those young women and I think you and Michelle are both incredible role models for, for young girls to, to see what they could be. I'm interested, actually, Zara, to dig a little bit into, you mentioned Glennon Doyle, and do you think she represents a new feminism or a feminism that is accessible for women like you?
0: And the thing about Glennon, I mean, it's really interesting. When I posted about Glennon and spoke about Glennon, it kind of um, created this whole debate in our book club between young women about whether Glennon's stuff is relevant to them or whether the book was relevant mm. to them. And I think some people said yes, some people said no. It was really, really interesting. But I think largely Glennon's feminism, given um, Glennon is a former Christian <laughs> mummy blogger, you know, who probably comes from a lot of privilege too. She's relatively intersectional in the work that she does which is unfortunately not as common for a lot of white feminists who have come before her you know like I I think that she does a lot of good work for a lot of different people and I think a lot of young women can kind of understand and respect that so yeah I mean I'm trying to think because I think I was I was so interested by the debate that went on in that in that Facebook group some women really really loved it some people thought I feel like I've read all this before. So I think it's quite indicative of the fact that the younger generation probably has grown up with a lot of this stuff. So some of the stuff that she's writing about maybe doesn't seem as shattering anymore.
1: I just wondered, hearing you talk about Glennon Doyle, when perhaps I was closer to your age is when Elizabeth Gilbert came out with Eat, Pray, Love. And I remember at the time... Maybe I had very young children or what. I don't even know if I was married. I don't know what year that came out. But it certainly didn't speak to me in the same no. way that Glennon's work has spoken to me now. Because I think I was in a different space different in space. And in also, life.
2: frankly, it was pretty self-indulgent pap, um, I, I think. <laughs> um, and also, let me truth be told, I listened to a podcast recently uh, between Glennon and Brené Brown. Yes. Have you guys? Yes, yes, we have. And... I found it really hard to listen to. I didn't identify um, with Glennon at all and whilst I call myself an out-and-out feminist, if that that means I believe in equal rights of women and men, absolutely, but she doesn't represent the feminism that I embody. I'm not sure... I don't know. There's certain people that, that are going to speak for you and, and she didn't speak for me.
1: Okay. And yet uh, I, amongst my friends, I've had, uh, well, not just friends, but a wider circle of people that I know that have read Untamed or even listened to the pod you're talking about with Brene Brown and Glennon, some people said to me it was life-changing. Mm. Maybe I, my lights were turned off or something. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think, Zara? No, it's so interesting because
0: the conversation that the both of you are having right now is the conversation that I was reading all over our socials. Like it was incredibly interesting. I feel like either people are incredibly affected by her work or not at all. Mm. I was really intrigued by Glennon because, um, and the reason I started talking about her on the podcast is I had never thought that she was for me. And truthfully, I'm still not at a point where I know if she is or not because I haven't consumed enough of her work. But I was quite um, ill one night. I was up late. I couldn't sleep. And I just put on an interview that she did on Conversations. Yes. And I found it really comforting. I really found it comforting. And I don't know if it was because it was late at night. I wasn't sleeping. And I was.
2: What do you mean by Comforting.
0: I found her tone comforting to start. It was a lovely listen in the middle of the night. But I just found her uh, jovial and thoughtful and she seemed kind. Mm. She's, and She's very positive and vulnerable yeah,
2: and all of the things yeah, that and Renee. Yeah,
0: generous with stories. And I, as someone who kind of interviews people every week on the podcast, I think that's what you want, right? And you guys would do the same. Like you, you want people ideally to be generous with their stories and their thoughts and their insights. And it was just lovely to hear that whether or not those stories are for me kind of remains to be seen, but I can respect anyone who wants to be open and and, um, generous with their
2: thoughts and insights and beliefs. Yeah, totally. And it's just what resonates and and what story, you know, you're carrying yourself and then how those two things kind of merge. We like to always end uh, our chats with people um, by acknowledging the fact that life is messy. And we ask all of our guests, who do you think is doing human well?
0: Oh, who do I think is doing human well? you know how I always think is doing human well? (laughs) Since she entered the public consciousness as someone like Michelle Obama, she just never seems to be doing anything terribly. And not that I know her at all or have any insight into her beyond what we see on the public eye, but I do love the kind of stuff that she puts out into the world and kind of the positive impact that she has on young women. Yeah, she's like an incredible person to to look up to and to kind of read the work of. Have you read um, Becoming? Yeah. You recommend it? I really, really would. You know what I also loved almost more? Because I'm not I'm actually for someone who's just written a nonfiction book, I usually gravitate to fiction rather than nonfiction, which is funny. So there is only a few people who I'd read the book of, the nonfiction work got, so she was one of them. But I loved her documentary on Netflix too.
1: You know, it's been so great to talk to you and hearing you talk about Michelle Obama. I know there'll be so many um, young women and older women too and dudes as well who are highly influenced by the work that you do and the stories you tell. So thank you for spending your time sharing some of them with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much
2: for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit.
1: And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.